Welcome to Digital Transformers, the show that connects you with what you need to build, manage, and operate your digital supply chain. Join your host in a timely discussion on new and future business models with industry-leading executives. The show will reveal global customer expectations, real-world deployment challenges, and the value of advanced business technologies like artificial intelligence, blockchain, and robotic process engineering. And now, we bring you Digital Transformers. Well, hello, everyone. This is Kevin L. Jackson, and welcome to Digital Transformers on Supply Chain Now. It's January. No, check that. It's February 2023, and the entire retail industry last month was at the NRF Big Show. In fact, I did a short article where I kind of teased today's interview, um, and we were talking about breakthrough. So this is an IBM-sponsored discussion about how the retail industry is going to break through in uh, 2023. I'm really excited to have as a guest a three-time CEO and two-time entrepreneur and a current Big Lots board member, Sandra Campos. And joining her on the show is IBM Consulting Partner, who specializes in supply chain transformation, Mark Meister. Thank you very much. You. Hey, Kevin, thanks for having us. Yes, thanks, Kevin. We're Excited looking forward to, to a fun conversation again. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, absolutely. So where are you today physically, Sandra? I'm in New York. I'm in New York uh, City. New York. Mm-hmm. Okay, and Mark? I'm outside of uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, where the, one of my clients has a frozen distribution center. Oh, wow. Mark, you're, you're, you're always like in the place to be. <laughs> he travels a lot, don't you? I was in the Middle East last week, so it's been a busy few weeks for sure. Oh, wow. I'm going out to uh, Dubai in a couple of weeks. I just missed you, so to speak. <laughs> yep. We need to have one of those maps. So it's like not where's Waldo, but where's Mark? <laughs> That'd be fun. Absolutely. But, uh, but to be honest, uh, Sandra, I am so honored to, to have you uh, on the show. I've seen quite a few of your CNBC interviews, and I'm starstruck, to be, to be honest. Yeah. Really impressed, really impressed with your personal background and professional insights. Could you please share with my audience your personal and professional history? It's it's so fascinating. Oh, my goodness. Well, you don't have that long for this show. And it's been <laughs> a long time. <laughs> the, good, the good thing about, I guess, age is some wisdom and things mm. you learn along the way. But I would say for just as an introduction into who I am and how I've gotten to where I've been throughout my career, it really started as a first-generation Mexican-American with parents who were immigrants, who were entrepreneurs out of necessity. Mm -hmm. And as entrepreneurs, they actually had a tortilla factory in which I started working when I was a big whopping eight years of age. But from that time on until basically the end of high school, I experienced assembly lines, making dough, working all along the factory, being on the logistics side when the trucks would come and pick up and deliver boxes going to supermarkets. So I was always really focused on 
entrepreneurs, building businesses, working with customers. We had a retail store at the front of the factory as well. This was in Texas when Mm. I was growing up. So I ultimately wanted to leave Texas, wanted to get to New York City. I thought I wanted to be in fashion to be a designer. I was absolutely not talented enough to do that. (laughs) So instead, (laughs) I said, well, I'm going to become a CEO or president. So how do I do that? And, And I started looking at different people in the industry and I charted my path the way that they had basically done theirs. I just wasn't trying to reinvent the wheel. I just thought, okay, well, they must have gotten there. Why can't I? And I'll do the same thing. And so as my career kind of progressed, you know, some of it intentional, some of it not intentional. You know, we don't always have a straight path towards what we envision in the beginning. There were a lot of curves. It's a roller coaster ride being having experiences both on the corporate side, which I worked for, you know, iconic legacy brands like Apollo Ralph Lauren, Oscar De La Renta, Donna Karen, et cetera. But in all of those businesses, also we had what now is called intrapreneurs. We didn't speak that language before, but mm-hmm. we were building businesses and divisions within those organizations. So it was able to, to really truly build something from nothing into a very substantial and large size organization. And so within that time, you also have experiences that you don't get when you have one single role and one single title because you have you wear multiple hats, just like an entrepreneur does. So I was able to just gain more and more experience. And that was to my benefit. And then I started really enjoying enjoying learning a lot of different things. So I started kind of taking my, my own path and went from corporate to becoming an entrepreneur. I launched the first celebrity band management company for Selena Gomez when she was 15 years old with my partner, Tony Malillo. He and I pulled together a business for six years that was quite substantial and really interesting across 14 wow. different categories. And it was at a time when 2009 and going into 2010, the entire world of digital started changing, right? Mm. And so then supply chain started changing and a lot of different learnings. And so I'm kind of elongating this story, but at the end, every single every single role that I've had and every single company that I've been a part of or that I've created have, have been really impactful to me in terms of understanding to be a broader leader, to understanding more about from beginning to end of the process and every little piece in between. So as I evolved from entrepreneur back into corporate, leading businesses that were up to a billion dollars of retail, you know, having a very different trajectory over the past 10 years because it was focused on digital and really rebuilding brands that have been legacy brands that needed to be revived, that needed to be turned around. Um, I've had a lot of that experience and got to be in a place during the pandemic even though it was a really challenging time, I was a CEO of DVF Diamond Furstenberg and we had to completely change the business model. And I ended up leaving the company the, the middle of the first year of the pandemic because we were all sitting at home not buying $500 dresses. No one knew it was right. going to happen at retail. It actually ended up pivoting me into a role where I became an interim CEO for a company that was focused on supply chain, but had a 3PL. And with that, I was able to get dive deep and a lot deeper than I certainly had overseeing businesses into exactly what all those metrics are, exactly what can change in terms of order management systems and and warehouse management systems and just the the change in what was happening. So that kind of led me to a lot of conversations, which you just mentioned on CNBC, because everyone was talking about supply chain. You know, what was going wrong? What can we do? What do we need to do? And so that conversation has been one that I think is going to continue over the next 10 years, which is why I'm really happy to be here and also learn from Mark, who's an expert, and talk to you guys just in terms of what I see as a retailer from the retailer's perspective of what's really the most critical for us to focus on. 
Wow, that, that's amazing. I cannot imagine what you haven't seen going from a tortilla factory worker on the line all the way to the board, right? You like you sit on the board of directors right now for Bitglots and Fabric and Daniels Jewelers. Uh, I mean, and as you said, you often address digital transformation and supply chain topics in your CNBC interviews. Um, does that really, uh, I guess, complement or intersect the advisory work you do on the uh, different boards? Absolutely. And, you know, that is because there's a lot of, on boards, I would say there's a lot of different yeah. levels of experiences with executives who are phenomenal. And I'm, I'm very proudly a part of the Big Lots board. And there's a lot of people who have great experiences, but there's not always a lot of people that have supply chain or an understanding of supply chain uh-huh. or have been through digital transformation. So it certainly does, I don't want to say separate you, but it certainly does help you when you're having these discussions about evolving businesses today because it is 2023 right and basically as we all know digital and online e-commerce has grown exponentially and will continue and now there's even more challenges of like how are you going to grow that and how do you make it how do you grow it profitably because now we have a whole new set of metrics that we have to work with yeah yeah and mark uh, you also have a very impressive background how did you wind up in supply chain transformation at uh, IBM Consulting. Oh, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks, Kevin. I'm glad to be here. Um, you know, like like most kids graduating high school, grew up in New England, ended up in Ohio State in a big big Midwestern school, and probably mid through fre- midway through freshman year studying accounting, I realized that this is too slow for me, and I, mm. I wanted to do something faster. And uh, supply chain was just kind of really coming into the eminence of, uh, of the domain. And Switched over to supply chain pretty much right at the exact time that it it, it blew up. Um, finished up college, went right into tech, working at Manhattan Associates, learning uh, software and, and, and package implementation work, and then immediately pivoting to call it broader consulting and working in some of the biggest consulting companies in the world, Capgemini, IBM, Cognizant, and uh, and then taking a little bit of a break and going off and starting my own consultancy and working as a VP in industry for uh, for some time before coming back to IBM and really leading our supply chain practice. Um, and throughout that time, I think it's, you're always chasing experiences and, 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 yeah. and learning opportunities. I think that's why I ultimately really thrive and love this consulting environment because you're always seeing new challenges and new events and supply chains are constantly moving. Um, and I think that's the exciting part of this, 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 you know, this, this time right now is how do we, how does, you know, supply chains becoming a competitive advantage. It used to be kind of a back office cost center world. And now it is, it is front and center competitive advantage and it's going to make or break your company. Uh, from a profitability perspective um, and from a going yeah, market well, perspective. Yeah, so we've, learned, we've learned how important it is just over the past uh, few years. And, uh, and, and last month, uh, during the big show uh, there in New York City, uh, one of the headlines was that the retail industry is smarter faster and, and more uh, innovative uh, than ever before. I mean, they had to do something after all of the massive changes with the um, uh, with uh, COVID and with digitalization. But, but Sandra, is, is that true? Is, is retail actually smarter, faster, and more innovative today? In certain ways, yes. 
but there's still a lot of retailers that have legacy systems that need to be Mm. transformed. And it's not easy. It's not like you can just go, we're going to flip the light switch on and then all of a sudden you're going to be modernized. You know, there's a lot that goes into it. There used to be, as you know, Mark certainly has a lot more experience as it relates to even consulting across enterprise level companies. But, you know, there used to be a lot of different, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. We have all these, the tech stacks quite large. And I think we have an opportunity to have a very smart and agile technology stack today. Yeah but it requires a lot of foundational fundamental changes in ERPs and other systems, which are costly, time intensive. And it's also, I don't know exactly what the analogy would be, but you're trying to do something at the same time that you're running business, right? So you're you're racing towards trying to make sure that you're driving revenues, you're driving profitability, you're driving growth, but at the same right. time, you have to change a lot of the foundational systems. So you have to retrain people. There's so much involved in it across the entire chain. So yes, we, we have smarter system capabilities. We have a lot more automation. And I love that personally. I think the automation and workflows and that's helpful to any organization. We all know that there's been a tremendous amount of, of discussion over the last month about ChatGPT and what mm-hmm. AI is doing overall in the industry. And that goes across a whole host of different sectors and different aspects of a business and running a business. So we are smarter. We can be smarter. There are a lot of tools now that we have access to that we certainly didn't have access to five, 10 years ago. But the foundation, the fundamentals, the the financing and making sure, especially if you have an omni-channel business, making sure that everything yeah. is integrated has to be much more agile, which then leads into what Headless Commerce is trying to do now. And you mentioned Fabric as a company that I sit on the board of, but that's exactly the point, is trying to make sure that there's a lot more agility and flexibility in how we develop our tech systems and how do we make sure that we are positioning ourselves, not just for today, but for the next five, seven, 10 years. Mark, yeah, love to absolutely. hear you on that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that analogy we use often is we're trying to rebuild the plane mid-flight. Um, there you and, go. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, rebuild and, the plane. And that's exactly correct. And as we work with our clients across the globe, um, you know, there's so much great new innovative technology, but how do you plug it in into this existing legacy infrastructure while maintaining service level and customer expectations? And that's that's ultimately the challenge at hand for most of our clients. It's not what is the right tech, it's how do you sequence it into your business and how do you in, infuse it to create value? Um, and, and and the exciting part for the next you know, couple of years will be solving those problems for uh, our clients and for retailers is, is what does that next generation look like? Um, and building that into their existing uh, infrastructure and slowly uh, re-architecting that. So one question about that. I mean, there are always multiple challenges, but how do you prioritize, right? Do I worry about getting my revenue in today, now, or do I use that money to build better infrastructure and get some of that, you know, buy one of those machine language things and get that chat uh, GPT so I can make more money later. How, how do you work the priorities? Well, I, th- I think what clients are seeing is, is the core business is definitely the, co- you know, the core systems are becoming a big focus right now. So uh-huh. warehousing, ERP, point of sale, and, 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 and getting those systems in a place where they are foundational and they are strong and they are stable, um, especially as we see the challenges in the industry is critical in order to then layer on top these really advanced technologies. 
um, such as ChatGPT or advanced automation or, um, you know, or, or robotic process automation, those all require that the core systems be in a good spot. And so it's a mix of, of how do you build for the future? And then when you build for the future, you, you really want to make sure you're putting the time and energy into creating the right hooks and pipes to, so that you can layer on additional technologies down the road. Um, and that's, that's always the hard part with, with tight budgets and, and constraints in the market and interest rates up. It, it's, it's, it's really convincing and working with clients to show the value of, we might not know exactly how this pipe is going to be useful to us in the future. Mm-hmm. We have a rough idea, but let's put it in now. Cause we know we can't, um, you know, when we want to do it, to do it in the future, we'll have to dig up the foundation. And that's the biggest piece for clients is how do you invest now so that you can build, uh, you can build on a stable infrastructure and not right. have to go back and rebuild. Well, I know that, you know, the infrastructure is important. Technology is critical. But, but Sandra, one of the most important things is people, especially in, in retail. What about the talent? What, what type of talent and experience are needed in retail supply chain? Well, I think this is a very, very good point because one of the – recent discussions, I guess it's not really that recent, but maybe in the last Mm -hmm. year or so, I've seen a lot of discussion around retail bringing in talent outside from outside sectors. Mm -hmm. And whether that might be in CPG, in beauty, in energy and other finance and other sectors that they're bringing in individuals, we need to do a better job of training. And that training, now I'm going to date myself, but going back Mm -hmm. to when I first entered this industry, we had a lot of training. And that training included going from department to department and learning the various functions. Since then, you know, individuals are very siloed. Their role has one narrow path. You don't have true visibility across the board. So it's incumbent upon us as an industry, it's my belief, that we need to be able to bring these training programs back where we give people visibility. You know, Mark mentioned earlier, supply chain was really back of the house, right? It's a back of the house function. It wasn't really as sexy to talk about. It's an absolute fundamental essential. And even leading businesses, while you're not involved in day to day, it's important to really understand how that's going to impact your profit and your margin because it can either take it down or it could increase it and it can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. And we've seen what's happened the last three years where it was a really big negative transportation costs. We've seen all the shipping impact, you know, and we talk about circularity and sustainability, but we need to train people. What does that truly mean? So I think that number one, we need to be able to start with programs early on even before people determine whether or not they want to get into the industry, we need to be able to give that visibility. So Mark is a perfect example, right? He just said he he got in right in the beginning, right? right. When he came out of college. I don't know if that's typical or not, but I would think that we need now is a time that we can actually showcase and share how important supply chain is to a business in general and that it's not an unsexy part. It's actually incredibly interesting. It's incredibly international. The globalization technology has changed supply chain. So you learn a lot of that with it as well. You're not just singularly focused on supply chain. And also I want to say supply chain there's a lot from A to Z in terms of supply chain. So we mm-hmm. use this, these two words as if it's all encompassing, but supply chain can mean everything from manufacturing to robotic automation at the warehouse to shipping and transportation in between and all the systems that go in. So there's a lot within it. And I think it's really incumbent upon us to to turn it into something that's really interesting and sexy and because it is, but we need to be yeah. able to speak to it that way. Yeah, so I think we have an opportunity now to do that. And IBM certainly has an opportunity. 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, to, talent is probably one of the most passionate things uh, for me. It's, it's, I think there's been a big uh, lack of focus in the past couple of years on, um, you know, in a lot of this pandemic related, but now that we're back in is how do we create talent? And it's, it's really incumbent upon all of us as consulting firms, as retailers, mm-hmm. as technology providers, uh, the, to build this next generation of talent, we have to bring we have to bring the, 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 this next generation along. We have to put them on the projects. We have to put them in the field. We have to you know, they have to feel it and see it head on. Um, I look back and when I was first out of college, we were on the road every week, um, and we were with people from around the world. Our colleagues from India, our colleagues from uh, from Europe, and they were we were all in that warehouse and we were all learning together. And by teaching, you know, having that cross cross cultural learning and just seeing it and being it uh, in it together, you're learning how the actual product moving through the cloud, the global supply chain. And it's, that is the, I think the mission of all of, all of us as a, as a leadership team, uh, as the leadership teams throughout the North America and the world to go bring this next generation of talent into your, your second point, San, Sandra, around which you're, you're, you're absolutely accurate on supply chain is now driving that call it commercial conversation. I, I mean, so many times I have a client conversation where they're asking, what can the warehouse do or what can the transportation network do? And, the, and we just immediately took, what do you need it to do? What is your business? How, do, how, do, how does your, you know, where's your, where's your commercial growth um, plan? And let us understand how that is going to impact so we can build you a supply chain to meet the business's needs. And so we consistently are seeing that kind of re, that, that new conversation of building a supply chain for the future, not what can this, what can this warehouse uh, do? And that third point I think is also really interesting that you mentioned about supply chain is just, you know, those are two words. Um, you know, from a university perspective, you still think of those pretty classic plan by make move. Uh, buckets, but when you think of those buckets, they are wildly different. The talent needed for planning versus the talent needed for distribution—it's a completely different skill set. Uh, you know, math and science, and you know, heavy analytics is living in the plan world, where you really need that that energy, that execution, focus, that drive to be in that warehousing distribution side, and and that's the other part of that talent model is it, it doesn't—it's it, not one type of talent, and it's it's all types of talent, and all types of um, personalities. So I think everyone can be in supply chain. It's a very inclusive, I think, community. Well, one thing, you, you guys are, are talking about something, and you may, some of the audience may see it as an aside, but where does culture play? Because um, we are in a globalized uh, society, um, and there's so much culture involved with products and how people interact with one another, but there's even a different culture when you're trying to digitally transform uh, your in- environment. So um, is this talent war, uh, I'll start with Mark, does it, is it involve culture as well? No, absolutely. I think the idea, and I'll, I'll go tell a quick story, is when I first started out of college, my first team was 100% from India. Um, my, my leadership team, my coworkers, um, so I, you know, I learned, you know, I grew up around, you know, people from all over the world, but this was a really interesting um, environment because you're learning a whole new culture right away, right out of college. And I remember it was a Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. and I came in, nobody was in the office and I couldn't understand why. And it was the India, Pakistan, you know, cricket turn, uh, uh, cricket finals. Um, <laughs> of course. And, and you learn, and, 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 you know, you learn like right then and there, there's a whole, you know, the, 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 just, just a different culture and a different, different world of importance, a different sport that, that mattered. And that team, we really flew around the world working on different projects together and learning from each other and how they're, and how they're, you know, how they view the world and how, how you know, what their, what their challenges are in their supply chain, where they see shortages, where we have challenges. 
I think that's critical to that learning phase is learning from people all over the world um, and it be able to take those wow. skills and call it cross infuse it. Um, I look at those experiences and I cherish them immensely because that is what taught me um, and, and made the leader I am today and, and the experience they have today. It's from the work we've done. Uh, intelligence is one thing, but I think experience is what drives true change and true um, call it development. Wow. So, so Sandra, uh, you're a Latina, right? And so you have these cultural views. You have a, a viewpoint as a woman. Uh, you have worked in so many different industries and environments. How does culture play in this? Well, first of all, I'm just going to say, Mark, how cool is that? What you've just said, because that's another area that I will absolutely agree with learning international business development, international communications, being there. You don't realize it. Certainly when you're starting out in industry, you don't realize exactly how impactful that is. But Mm -hmm. even as my career evolved and I became a CEO and I was having negotiations and conversations with either distributors or franchise partners all over the world, whether it was in China, Southeast Asia, Russia, Middle East, et cetera, just having had that experience previously of going and working with manufacturers and developing product in different regions made such an mm-hmm. impact in terms of how I knew to communicate across the table, or I would learn how to communicate across the table, right? It's very different in, from country to country in terms of how they manage that. So I think that's very, very cool. I don't think it's a topic that comes up very often in terms of supply chain and the learnings that you get from that and being able to drive talent into that. So I just wanted to kind of yeah. put a little highlight on that one. As it relates to how I see things and what I think, you know, where we're going and some of the the areas of focus now is near shore manufacturing. And that really has to do a lot with Central America, Latin American countries that are in a way certainly advanced to a certain level, but are also becoming more advanced in in another level. I just did a Last May, actually, I was in Panama with Bloomberg for a summit there, and it was all about, again, how do we really help these Latin American countries get to a place where they can actually get more of the business because we need nearshore sourcing opportunities because we, if we ever have another situation like a pandemic or we need, you know, just not having the reliability 100% focused in one region of the world. So we need to diversify our supply right. chain, that was part of it. So I think that, you know, culturally looking at how do we make sure that we, again, aren't singularly focused on one area, one region of the world that can develop all of our product needs. How do we make sure that we are helpful to some of these countries that may not be there yet, but we can help them and help provide those tools for them so that they can be more important. It's incumbent to kind of have a dual partnership. We can't just rely on them solely to be able to develop these things without knowing how to deal with us as a country or as businesses as well. So there's the cultural part for me, you know, you mentioned as Latin, one is I'm, I'm looking at these countries within, again, you know, whether it's Guatemala, Honduras, mm-hmm. there's so much more that's that's happening in Portugal and other areas, depending on the, the category of business. But we can do a better job of helping them to get prepared so that, that they also become more important to us and we become more important to them. So hopefully they yeah. answered that question. But I do think it's, it's a dual responsibility. I don't think we can just expect that they're going to be there now after decades and decades of relying on, you know, basically the the eastern part of the world to develop mm-hmm. most of our goods. 
Yeah, it's also important that it's not exploitative either. I know uh, Vice President Harris just uh, recently highlighted a new agreement to try to expand uh, uh, two-way trade uh, between uh, the United States and, and South America. But um, so, but let's sort of get back into the technology uh, side. So, so Mark, uh, digital transformation is all the rage, but what role does technology and automation play in making retail, you know, smarter, faster, better? Absolutely. Well, I think the biggest shift in the last couple of years, especially since the pandemic, is is the physical automation, the you know, robotics, conveyance, automation, goods to person solutions, sortation. Um, the traditional warehousing has always had those types of solutions, and it's always been kind of a how do we reduce, you know, how do we save money on labor and, and automate? And it's always been a good conversation. It's now becoming a must-have conversation with labor shortages and challenges on, on, on labor reliability and just very and, and surety supply issues. The need to automate yeah, your distribution centers and the need to automate, you know, all parts of your business is becoming a table stakes conversation. Uh, and we are spending a ton of time with our clients talking about the next generation of automation, uh, robotic picking, goods to person, uh, to, you know, to tote removals, uh, pack station optimization, put wall optimization, uh, parcel sortation. These are all areas of uh, incredible investment in, in big, you know, both big players from, from, from the European automation houses to the to startups in Silicon Valley. Everyone is moving toward an automated environment and building automated uh, solutions. And that that is driving, I'd say, incredible demand in the industry. And then also to our talent conversation, um, you know, co- large talent shortages in these spaces. Yeah, so it, it seems like that all we really need is enough data and artificial intelligence and we'll magically get all the answers. So, Sandra, is, is that true? Is technology the panacea for everything that, that hurts us? What what important technology players do you see in the marketplace to help us get to that, you know, technology nirvana? <laughs> well, I want to pick up where Mark just left off because, you know, yes, there it is table stakes in terms of looking at fulfillment centers and automation and being able to actually have more productivity and efficiency within mm-hmm. within that because it, it is the table stakes today. However, it's expensive. It takes time to learn. And we cannot forget that you just mentioned AI. AI is only as good as the people that are delivering the information to it. So Mm. the more information you get, the better it becomes and the more it learns, right? So oftentimes in in the retail industry, we end up swinging the pendulum from one to the extreme to the other and think that there's going to be one panacea and then we have to find our way somewhere back into the middle. So I'm always a little cautious of saying something is going to change everything that we have just with one solution or with one new focus, one new area of focus, because they're still new. I mean, there's $9 billion worth of capital that's being invested every quarter in supply chain technology. It's not all proven. You know, it needs time. And obviously, Mark and his team and what he's doing, he in Manhattan Associates, where you were, Mark, for many time for many years, you know, 
these are experts, they're doing it. But again, a lot of this is new. So as we're developing new technology, as we're seeing new needs, as we have a whole new fleet of new retail out there with new retail expectations and new valuations out there and all the different expectations on the metrics that have changed and evolved, we still have to remember that this is new and we're going to need to make sure that we are cautious. I'm very optimistic about a lot of these things, but they're also very costly to an organization. And you do need to have people that are trained in it and you need to have the foundational capabilities from a technology standpoint to be able to make sure that they get integrated and they're mm-hmm. integrated well so that you can be successful with it. So uh, while I think technology is fantastic, amazing, and there's many businesses out there that I could list a name that I think are going to be next generation, mm-hmm. I want to be very cautious about how we go about it. You know, just again, we talked about ChatGPT. You're seeing now some of the failures of ChatGPT. It's not perfect. Things are not perfect yet. All of a sudden, everyone's going to run to do everything on ChatGPT <laughs> and forget about the human. You know, there's now new automation. I saw a company yesterday that's automating t-shirt production with without humans. But at the end of the day, there are humans and you have to have humans. So we can't forget yeah. discount that we still need to have talent. We still need to train. We need to be able to do it in tandem with technology and make sure, as Mark said earlier, like what are those needs that your organization has and build that into the technology roadmap? Absolutely. No, great. And, and to Mark, Sandra's yeah, point. What about, what about I mean, sustainability what, and technology, uh, Mark? Absolutely. And I'll, I'll, I'll echo Sandra's comments. I think, um, and follow on is profitability is becoming the big conversation too, is as interest rates have gone up and the ability to, to borrow against, you know, to borrow against these needs is, is gone up. It, how do you put these technologies in profitably? Cause, because there is an unlimited budget to spend on CapEx and put in the most advanced robots and the most advanced picking systems and the most advanced store associate experience systems. It, it requires the ability to scale with profitability in mind. And that requires a lot more skill than ever. Um, and when it comes to sustainability, I think that is also going to become a table stakes conversation. I, I think we're, we're, we're already there uh, and it's hitting the market hard and everyone's starting to call it ruminate on what do I do about sustainability? And is it, you know, is it, is it a separate silo that I have? Is it, is it, how do I infuse it into my overall culture? Um, I look at sustainability as something like project management or analytics. These are going to become core. Mm-hmm. Everybody will have sustainability skill set. It's going to be expected that you understand sustainability and that all the projects you do have a sustainability lens to them versus a, a, a standalone effort um, uh, that, that a lot of it is today. And I think we're seeing that shift to we need to measure. We need to measure the sustainability of the warehouse, for example. We need to measure the sustainability of of our stores. We need it needs to be built into every piece of the process, and it becomes that table stakes idea. And it is becoming very important to consumers, very important to the employee base. Of how do we make sure we're doing things in a sustainable way? I, you know, when we when we work with clients, I think you know anywhere that extreme waste exists right now is getting you know a, you know, a very hard, you know, very you know deep scrutiny because we can't continue to waste. Uh, natural resources and things that are really important to this planet um, at the pace we're doing. And we have to create, uh, call it sustainable models to, to build out the next, you know, the next companies. Yes. Well, okay. Go so I, I want to jump in on this one because yes, <laughs> it, it has to be fundamental, but keep in mind, this is also something that's relatively new. It hasn't been taught. There are certain companies, Europe has been far more advanced than we are in the States. There are companies that have been doing yeah. like Ikea for decades, Burberry for decades. They've been farther ahead of where the U.S. is. But then there's also a bit of a conflict because the consumer 
and Gen Z in particular, who talks about how important this is, also at the same time is buying from Shein and making it one of the biggest retailers out there. And it is nothing but fast fashion and nothing but throwaway fashion. And still the apparel industry is one of the worst offenders. And so there, number one, there needs to be standardization. What are the metrics that we're going to hold everybody accountable to? There is nothing right now today. So mm -hmm. yes, it's a topic at the top of the list. But how do we effectively measure that and ensure that companies in various sectors are meeting those objectives that we have on a global basis? That's a major miss right now, in my belief, and it's something that we need to be able to drastically improve upon and, and really create something, whether it's governments doing it or whether it's a company leading the way to be able to standardize it. That's one thing that we need to be able to do. The second thing is that we need to do more training. And we need to put that as not only the top of the agenda, but there needs to be actionable takeaways that every department, every function is responsible for within a company, because that sustainability factor goes all the way across an organization, every single piece of it, whether you're using paper, what you're doing at the warehouse, what you're doing on the computer, like everything in between. You know, we everybody yeah. went crazy for crypto and Bitcoin and mining, and then all of a sudden you're hearing it's not sustainable. So there's a lot of things that kind of change over time as we learn as well. So I think standardization, metrics, and making sure that not only is it part of the agenda, but there have to be actionable takeaways that each department, each function, each role, and each individual is taught you know, on a regular basis, and we have continuing education to to help when we have turnover in organizations and, and they come in, you need to make sure that that's part of the value system and also something that is is uh, is actually functional within within a role. Totally so agree. I think, I think yeah. you, you I'm thinking. The, K, the KPI thing, Sandra, and that I think you know, before we can really make sustainable changes, we have to get super clear on the baseline of the measurement. Sustainability measurement um, is critical. And once that becomes just like profit or revenue or any other core metric to a business, everyone knows that these are our three or four. We're measuring carbon, we're measuring water, we're measuring energy, whatever, whatever that makes sense for that department, that group where it becomes infused into the, you know, the vernacular and the, just the reporting of that organization. I think that will be the the big foundation to push now, all right, how do we actually take it out? And how do we start to make it more sustainable and, 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 and iterate on top of it? And um, it's also like a golden seal of approval. I should yeah. have that seal of approval. So where and how do we create that? And how do we make sure that we're holding companies accountable to follow that? Absolutely. And the no. trade-offs too. I think that's the other piece is these trade-off quite, um, you, you know, the sub-optimization of sustainability, I think will be a big topic on, you know, this group may, may get great sustainable goals and they've optimized their, their microcosm, but then that has created a massive sustainability issue for another group because they're buying differently or they're sourcing. And so their, their energy price went down, but another group went up by 5X. And how do you then cross-functionally measure sustainability at a macro impact so that you don't sub-optimize this right. at, a, at a business or unit level? And that you don't also push those extra costs onto the consumer because that's happened, right? Whether it's organic farming, that you're paying more for organic foods, uh, whether it's sustainable products because sustainable fabrication costs more. Well, why? You know, we're, mm. we're passing that off to the consumer just so that we, is it greenwashing? You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things. This is a very big topic, obviously, but I think it's, oh, yeah. it's one that we have to get much smarter, much better about. We can't just say, okay, yes, we're sustainable. We're checking the box because there's a lot of ways that we need to be more sustainable and, and truly be able to impact the, the it, environment. 
Yeah, but all of this is, uh, once again, it's a balance, right? Uh, you sit on the board, so if it's not profitable, I don't care if it's sustainable. Maybe that's the, the answer. But you really have to have visibility across all of your business processes so that you know where you are uh, in that balance. So enhancement of visibility across the supply chain uh, when you're supporting basic tasks like tracking and tracing, picking and packing, um, how can we increase that visibility, uh, Mark? Uh, because what are your clients doing as they sort of jump headlong into digital transformation in order to enhance that visibility across the supply chain so that you have the metrics so that the board can understand you know, the, the gravity of their decisions? Well, I think that's one of the reasons why um, IBM acquired Invisi and that technology is being infused through our portfolio is that measurement. And that's one of the mm. one of the big parts. And as we work with clients, I think it's really around that measurement. And that, and one of the challenges that we push to our, uh, you know, these new projects is when we get into, we're going to kick off a big, you know, large transformation. How are we putting sustainability measures in place for that program and measuring, you know, sustain, what, what are the sustainable impacts and outcomes of that program? So I think it, it's got to start to infuse in that CapEx process of, saying we're going to do this XYZ project and yes, this is our revenue enhancement and our cost savings, but then here's our sustainability goals for our project. And that's, I think, a conversation that's happening as we start new, as we start new projects. Um, and then taking along that chief sustainability officer and infusing that into our in, in, into our day to day operations. I think to what Sandra, you said earlier, it's, it's, it's becoming that baseline talent model. Um, how do we train everybody on sustainability? Uh, you know, I look at project, like project management's a core skill. Everybody should have project management skill sets. Mm -hmm. That's just part of kind of becoming, you know, growing up in the business world, you learn how to, you know, do, you know, be, do professional project management. Sustainability has to be the same exact thing. It's just the baseline set of skills that you that you have and as part of your training, all the way starting from high school to college to your initial training programs in your corporations. And then it becomes built into the fabric of the, um, of the company, uh, and, and and you don't have to then kind of like force it or push it. It just it's second nature. It's built into the the muscle memory of the organization. Mark, so now we're is, coming is, full call. Sorry. Full, I, I was going to say, Mark, what is the benefit of Invisi? If you can talk to that, just briefly. Yeah, Invisi does uh, is is one as an ESG tool. It does a, it does a really great job at measuring ESG and reporting out and allowing corporations to start to get those measurements in place. Um, and it's it, you know we've seen really good success with it. Uh, our IBM, my, my brother and IBM Technology. Um, run that portfolio and they, they, you know, we're seeing a ton of demand from our clients to get those mm. measurements in place. Um, and then, you know, that's that yeah. previous, exactly. Absolutely. To our previous point of, you know, first, the, the first kind of, and we're in this point now, this call to action of at the board level, at the, at mm -hmm. the shareholder level, there's an expectation of, you know, an ESG report and management and you're seeing proxy votes and pieces like that. That's now pushing down to the next layer of the C-suites and making sure the C-suite organizations have their own sustainability measures, which will then push into their organization. So we're seeing it flow down and we're seeing those those roles exist. It's just going to take time to your point again on this is new. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not wildly new, but the, but how to operationalize it is new. And I think that's part of the, the focus over the next decade. Yeah. I guess what we're seeing is that these metrics are actually driving cultural changes, which uh, are really a really important linkage. So I really appreciate that Mark. Uh, but as we come to the end of our time together, I want to 
sort of start wrapping up with Sandra, what's in store for supply chain and retail industry uh, in 2023? Mm. Well, one, from a manufacturing standpoint, absolutely diversifying your suppliers and the network of suppliers. So diversifying it to a lot more near shore. Hopefully we're going to be able to actually see some domestic production take mm-hmm. a hold and be comparable in terms of price points so that we can actually ensure that we have some more products that are made in the U.S. I think that's still going to be a, a big goal, but it's one that we need to have. So one, diversification of supply chain in terms of manufacturing. Two is making sure that you have a technology stack that is agile, that's flexible, that gives you the ability to kind of put in and take out when you need to. Mm-hmm. And that's going to change. You know, the, It's inevitable. It's going to change. It's the one thing that we know that there's going to be something new next year, the year after, there's going to be things that might come in that better, and you might have to make some changes there. But the technology, the the flexibility of a tech stack will be the second one that I would say. And, and third is the talent pool and making sure that, again, out of that $9 billion that's being invested in supply chain, some of that has to be around the workforce and the talent and the training and the education and making sure that we're we're able to do that. We're able to bring women, more women into supply chain as well, because while they may be on one side in terms of product development and manufacturing, they're also not on another side of the supply chain, which might have to do more with the logistics and the the last mile. And so we need to make sure that we're having more of a balanced and diverse world. And that goes into AI and technology development because we need a female perspective as well as a diverse perspective when mm-hmm. we're actually training our technology tools. So those would be the three areas that I, I feel that are going to be really important. But I agree with Mark as well. This is the next 10 years. Great. Thanks. And, and Mark, what do you see in 2023? It's hard to, it's hard to argue with Sandra. Uh, you really nailed the three. Um, I would definitely echo number one is for me is talent, talent, talent is building, is building a sustainable talent engine for the future and having global talent, uh, onshore talent, nearshore talent, uh, so that we can you know meet the needs of, uh, of, of our clients. Uh, I think that's going to be the top piece. Second, I spoke to a little earlier is automation and how we continue to automate businesses and automate uh, the way we do work so that we can focus on on the higher value work such as sustainability and then three is uh, really that surety of supply that you you, you uh, alluded to as well mm. is that i don't see this i don't see supplies getting you know better quickly uh, we're going to see uh, shortages of goods for quite some time in various markets and understanding your your supplier base and being able to diversify and skew rationalization and all the right areas to make sure that you can manage in a in a scarce supply world, I think is going yeah. to be a big focus. Um, I don't think we're going to come back to a spot where um, we have kind of this unlimited capacity that we had in, uh, you know, in the past 20 years. Well, great. I will add Thank one you. more if I can add another one. And I think sure. we'll Absolutely. As well, and, and we're talking about it and we've talked about it a lot, but the visibility. So you just mentioned in terms of product and oversupply, you know, we've seen what has happened to businesses when they have excess inventory. We have to be able to create technology tools and analytical tools that help the predictability of inventory needs, because that goes into a circular economy, it goes into sustainability, there's so much that it impacts in terms of profitability. We saw what happened in 2022 with retailers having excess inventory. So what happens, you do have a ton of markdowns, and your competitive markdowns that you know, you, you can't not do it if you're competing with another one that's marking down every day. And those markdowns impacted margins and profitability. And some of the biggest retailers were impacted by it. So that continues to be a need we really haven't 
seen, or at least I haven't seen anything that's that's really uh, that best in class that can have and provide that visibility for forecasting inventory needs, but it is an essential. So it's an area that I think has to continue to be prioritized. Wow. Thank you very much. We have really covered the waterfront in this broad ranging uh, discussion. So, so Sandra, in, in wrapping up, how can our audience reach out to you to learn more about, you know, the retail industry and, and digital transformation? Always LinkedIn. I'm a LinkedIn. Okay. So LinkedIn, I am there, Sandra Campos, NYC. And I try to respond to as many people as I can. It's something uh-huh. that's really important to me to make sure that I help as many people as possible. So whether that's through various introductions or just input and thought leadership, I'm there. Wow. Well, thank you very much. And Mark? LinkedIn as well. Um, absolutely. It's the, the, the best way to get, get in touch with me. Wow, well, thank you both very I much. I know you're going to be at a warehouse the next time we see you, too. <laughs> always, always. Yeah, in the freezer again. <laughs> Once you create that map of where you're located so that you can actually have the GPS track, you make sure you put it on LinkedIn. Absolutely. So thanks again for spending, for both of you, for spending your time with us. So in closing, I would like to invite everyone to check out the wide variety of industry thought leadership that we provide at supplychainnow.com. And you can find Digital Transformers and Supply Chain Now wherever you get your podcast. So be sure to subscribe. But on behalf of the entire team here at Supply Chain Now, this is Kevin L. Jackson wishing all of our listeners a bright, and transformational future. We'll see you next time on Digital Transformers. Thank you for supporting Digital Transformers and for being a part of our global Supply Chain Now community. Please check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com. Make sure you subscribe to Digital Transformers anywhere you listen to or view the show and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Digital Transformers.